Good morning, everyone. It's an honor to be here together, and we've just been saturated in God-honoring worship this morning. Uh, thank you so much to our praise team, that new song that was sang, and to Dr. Logan. I was talking with him yesterday. He chose that music specifically for this message, and so what a blessing to be here. And whether you're here with us here in the room or you're tracking with us online or through the radio, we're glad that you're here as well. Because we gather together, not as teachers and students, not as bosses and employees and, and parents, we gather together as one, one family to hear what God's Word is, is to us today and to respond. And so last week, Pastor Rodley spoke to you about what happens after your world falls apart. And this week, I want to continue along that vein and talk to you about the theme, when you don't have what it takes. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your invitation to us to not be the same. Lord, may we be here today listening to this message, not out of tradition, not because it's the rhythm of our lives, but in response to your invitation to transformation. And we bring everything we have, the good, the ugly, in your presence, may we allow you to challenge us, to alter us, even to disrupt us today. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever noticed the power of positive words goes a really long ways? As parents, my wife Leandro and I, one of the things that we want to move away from is our kids using the phrase, I can't, I can't, I can't. And so we instituted something called the I can. You ever heard of this? And so whenever there's a challenging situation, instead of the phrase I can't, if they use the phrase I can, there's going to be a little payday. Now, you can't just walk up to the can and say, I can, I can, I can, I can, I can, and expect $10. There's limits. It's got to be a challenge. It's got to be something that really stretches you. And so I remember when our daughter, Sage, uh, her, when she was learning to ride a bike, she was still on her training wheels, and she was saying, I can't. I just can't. It's too hard. But the day came when Big Brother, we got any Big Brothers here? Big Brother goes into Daddy's toolbox. I see one right there. And he pulled out a crescent wrench, and he single-handedly took those bolts off those training wheels, put them on the ground, I was at work, but when I get home, I see my wife and I see my son Levi pushing Sage in our neighborhood in Tampa, Florida, running with her with no training wheels saying, you can, you can, you can, you can, you can. That's what you call an I can payday, my friends. And it goes to show that positive words go a long ways. However... There are situations in our life, there are challenges that some of you are facing right now where the I can is just not enough. The stakes are much higher. You might be a new student here at this campus and you've come wide-eyed, excited, and you find yourself now in the midst of classes and, and jobs and bills and relationships. You're a little overwhelmed. You might be graduating, recently graduated. Anybody here? You got the degree, you dressed up, you marched, you went through the whole process, 
and you watch as your other friends are getting jobs and you're asking God, what is the next step? Or you're facing a health crisis and in spite of all your best research and paying bills and everything else with the physicians, we prayed about it this morning. You're at the end, the, limit, the limitation of your own resources to handle that situation. Some of you might even be in the thick of your career and you are productive You're well-respected. You're full of vitality. There's endless open doors that you're walking through. And yet, are you really fulfilled? And so what I want to look at this morning is what do we do when we don't have what it takes? What do we do when the I can is not enough? When we sense that there's something more, there's an emptiness, there's a challenge that we can't handle How will we come to Jesus and how will he respond in ways that just might disrupt our life, all right? So if you have a copy of the scriptures, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. And as you turn there, the gospel of Mark, it's a beautiful book, just a little of the context about it, but the gospel of Mark, the very first verse gives the whole thing away. That's what I like. I like when it's straightforward and just laid out there. Chapter 1, verse 1 says... It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus, Messiah, the Son of God. And if you look at the Gospel of Mark, it's divided into two basic sections. The first question, or the first section, asks the question, who is Jesus? And through discovery, the disciples discover through Peter's confession that he is the Messiah. And then the second half of the Gospel of Mark asks the question, if Jesus is Messiah, what does it mean to be Messiah? And we come to a Roman centurion who saw the way Jesus died. And he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So Mark chapter 1 verse 1 says, Jesus is both the Messiah and Son of God. Those two confessions. And so in our story today, Jesus is, has been confessed as Messiah. And now he's headed towards Jerusalem where he will reveal himself as the Son of God. Picking up in verse 17. It says, as Jesus started on his way... This is towards Jerusalem. A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we know that through, through the Gospel of Matthew that this wealthy person of influence was also young. And that's why he's often referred to as the rich, young ruler. But if you look in the Gospels, people are constantly setting traps for Jesus, are they not? They come and they seem sincere, but it's a trap. But you look at this young man and he runs up to Jesus. He takes a posture of humility and learning and he wants to know what must I do to inherit eternal life? Not unlike another rich ruler who happened to be old named Nicodemus. You remember that story? Nicodemus thought there was something more. There had to be something more. And Jesus came up to him and he didn't just improve his life. He didn't give him a self-help book. He pulverized his whole view of life. And he said, you have to be born again. That's exactly what he's about to do with this young man right here. But notice, he asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is a way of saying, he comes to Jesus like many of us do, with a faulty assumption on spirituality. He believes that Christianity is something that you add It's something additional. And he comes up to Jesus thinking, you know, in spite of all that I've done, in spite of all the good things, 
I realize I don't have what it takes, and, but maybe I need an extra facet to round out my life. Maybe following God is just an extra power in order to fill that emptiness or that void that I have. It's an extra book on my shelf. But Jesus is going to say, no, 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 not at all. Following Christ is not something additional to your life. It's not a better program. It's, entirely, it's an entirely new program. He's about to disrupt his life. And notice how he responds in verse 18, moving along in the story. He asked a question, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. But you know the commandments, you, and he lists them here. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. This man has double riches. Not only does he have financial wealth, but he has moral wealth. And he comes to Jesus and he says, I have always honored the religious traditions of my community. I have worked hard. I have accomplished. I have high ethics. I have high integrity. I have high financial cue and all the skills that I bring to life. But Jesus starts to probe a little bit in his life. And he asks them the question, why do you call me good? Isn't that interesting? You know, he quotes, the, he quotes the commandments, and he quotes the second table of the law. What are the Ten Commandments? First table of the law. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt have no idols. Thou shalt not take the name of the, my, of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The first table. He quotes the second table. But instead of the commandment, you shall not covet, what does he say? He says, do not defraud. Which is a way of saying, are you really good? Have you really honored me in all your contracts and shown empathy to those that you work with and lived really with goodness? You see, for the rich young ruler, the issue is not money. So if you're concerned, just put it on hold. This is not a message about stewardship. The issue is not money. The issue is that money had become more than money. I wrote up here just a simple assessment, three points. How do we know that when, when, when our stuff becomes more than stuff to us? Number one, can anyone, can anyone identify with these? You have a hard time giving large sums away. Somebody here is saying, I don't have large sums, Anthony. That's not a problem. It would be a great problem to discover, but it's not a problem. But it's relative. Have you gone to a restaurant instead of 15 or 18%, you gave 50%. Have you, do you find it difficult to give large sums away? Number two, you get scared when you have less than you are accustomed to. Can anyone relate? As honest and transparent before God, I must say myself that I look at times in my life when, when money has been tight, and when those times come, I don't find that I go to a place of peace and contentment. I find that I go to a place of anxiety. And, and, and God forbid, but sometimes I find myself being short or maybe being rude with someone on the phone. Do you get scared when you have less than you're accustomed to? And number three, do you resent those who don't work as hard as you do, but are better off? You ever had that happen? Let me share a quick story as we're moving along here. One of the things that I was blessed to receive from my father, my parents are here this weekend as we're celebrating a family birthday, 
was the blessing of hard work. And I remember one of the jobs that I did in high school, I was employed at a five, uh, a luxury restaurant. You're talking white gloves, white hat. The name of that restaurant was Taco Bell. (laughs) And I can remember as someone who works hard being in that line. And while I was folding burritos, while I was pulling out the steamer, while I was working, 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 there was always that employee. And I remember looking over, there was a line out the door and one of my coworkers was there with the broom, sweeping slowly, and on their hip, they had a brand new Sony Walkman. And was anyone alive in the 90s? Okay? Before the digital age, they're living the analog dream, amen? Brand new Sony Walkman. And it occurs to me that although I'm working so hard, they're getting paid the same. And they seem better off because they're happier with a brand new Walkman. And I started to feel just a little resentment in my heart. Can you follow me? Are you tracking with me? The issue with the rich young ruler, when he did not have what it takes, was not the issue. Anyone who's gone deep in the Christian life discovers that the issue is never the issue. Is it, is it true? There's a historian named Andrew Walls, speaking of the overlap between finance and faith, and he makes the ob- observation that Christianity in contrast to other world faiths, is the only faith where the center of power is not in the origin, is not in the geographic origin where that faith started. And if you think of the other world faiths, you usually think of a specific culture or a country that they connect to. But Christianity started in Jerusalem, and then it moved to the Mediterranean, to North Africa, to Europe, to North America, And today, South America and Africa, over 50% of Christians live in the Southern Hemisphere. And he, he quotes, I want to share a quote that he shares. It's very interesting. Notice what he says. When Christianity is in a place of power and wealth for a long period, the radical message of sin and grace and the cross can be muted or even lost. Then Christianity starts to transmute, transmute into a nice, safe religion. One that's for respectable people who try to be good. And eventually it becomes virtually dormant in those places and the center moves elsewhere. Wow. In other words, as I like to say, God goes where he's wanted. Is he wanted in this community, in this campus? That's not the right question. Is he wanted in your heart and in my heart? The rich young ruler, like many of us today, he sees faith as a horizontal line. A horizontal line. And up here are the good people. Down here are the bad. Up here are the nice. Down here are the nasty. Up here are the religious. And down here are the irreligious. Some variation of this concept. But Jesus comes along and he smashes that line. And he says, Christianity is not a horizontal line. It's a vertical line. Up here is God. No one is good except God alone. And down here is humanity. Nice and nasty people. And there's two approaches, fundamental approaches to God. One is by your own merits. And if you're nice and you do good, 
you end up in self-pride because you're better than everyone else, relatively speaking. If you're nasty and irreligious and mean, you end up in self-pity because you'll never be as good as others. But Jesus comes along and says, smash that. There's a whole nother way to approach me. It's not on the basis of your accomplishments. It's on the basis of mine. It's not on the basis of your goodness. It's on the basis of my goodness. It's not your dedication to Jesus Christ. It's God's dedication to you through Jesus Christ. That's the way to approach Jesus. Amen? That's the gospel, and that's the radical reorientation that he's giving to this rich young ruler. He says, you want an extra program? You want a little more wisdom or a book on your shelf? Forget that. What you really need is a better God. You catch that? What the rich young ruler really needs is not a better approach to finance. It's not a Dave Ramsey financial peace seminar, although those are good. What he needs, what you and I need today is a better God. We need a better God because the power and the message of Christianity, it's not that Christians are better than others. Oh no, have you noticed? The power and the message is that Jesus is better than everyone. That's the message that we take. That's the message that transforms our hearts. And so Jesus comes to him and he says, hey, it's commendable that you are seeking truth. It's commendable that you know something is missing. But my concern is not with your goodness. My concern is with your doctrine of goodness. That's what I'm concerned about. And finally, as we read on this story, Jesus has probed. Jesus has talked to him about goodness, but now he gets the most intense response from this young man because he gets personal. And for lack of a better term, he drops a bomb. Notice what it says here, verse 21 and 22. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. We're going to come back to that. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And what does it say? Verse 22. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, let's explain here. Nowhere in Scripture is there the expectation that every Christ follower must sell everything he has, give to the poor in order to follow God. That expectation is not there. In fact, Zacchaeus in the New Testament, he gave 50%. So the issue is not the issue. There's something deeper going on here. The rich young ruler does not need a better approach to generosity. What he needs is a better God. And I want to just keep this up and talk to you about this a little bit here this morning. Because Jesus says to him, and he says to you and I, everyone here, will you give me your dreams? When he asked that young man to sell everything, he's asking him the question, will you give me your dreams? Which is a way of saying, will you give me the very thing that you think will bring joy and power apart from me? Will you give me that one thing, that one dream that you think if you only had it would bring joy and happiness and power apart from me? If you can't sacrifice that, there's no discipleship taking place. And we've got to locate that in your heart. And like a surgery, we got to dig in there. We got to identify that, extract it, 
and kill it before it kills you. That's what he's saying. Friends, if you take a good thing and you turn it into a God thing, it becomes a really bad thing. What is that one dream? If you're, if, if you're that one dream, young lady, is finding that perfect guy, right? Does everybody know what happened today? Megan found Harry, right? If your one dream is of finding that perfect guy, think about it. Marriage is a good thing. It's a noble thing to find a good spouse. But if that's your center of your dream, your heaven is marriage, your hell is singleness, and your savior is a man. And when you meet him, everyone says, look at them. Aren't they cute? In fact, she adores him. She worships him. If your dream is business success, being successful is good. You change lives. You change processes. You change things for the better. But if that's the center of your life, then heaven is financial gain. Hell is financial loss. And your savior is the market and your own hard work. You need a better God. You need a better God. If, if your dream is health, heaven is whole foods. Hell is that greasy chicken joint down the road. And your savior is certified organic. Oh, we're getting a little too much. Pastor, a little too much, a little too much. And if your dream is of being a person of great influence, a world changer, great influence, that's great if it's God's dream, amen? But if that's at the center of your life, your heaven is professional advancement, hell is getting passed up for opportunities, and your savior is your own reputation. You definitely need a better God. We need a better God. And friends, we do not have what it takes, period. But Jesus is telling us through this story that what we really need is not just the resources to do what we think we should. It's not self-help and improvement. It's not five steps on how to live a more generous life. We don't need to download a file in order to get our computer to have greater capacity to run our programs. Jesus comes along and he pulverizes those whole assumptions and he says, what you need is a better God. We need a better God. And in this story, as in every story in scripture, as in every commandment, as in every narrative, as in every part to the Bible, there's always a gospel thread. There's always a thread that if you follow it, it'll take you straight to the heart of Christ, straight to the gospel. You know, I like to say that the reason the Bible is good for you is because it's not about you. You catch that? The reason scripture is good for us is because it's not about us. It's not about who we are and what we've done. It's about the goodness of another. And what are those threads in this story? Look at what happened to the response at the end of this story. After Jesus calls this young man to sell everything, give to the poor and follow me. It says in verse 22, if we can put that on the screen, it says at this, the man's face fell and he went away. What? He went away sad as if something that you just get over and move on with your life. No, 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 no. This word in Greek, it means overwhelmingly sorrowful or greatly distressed. This tore the roof off his life. And this is the same word 
that's used a few chapters later as Jesus goes to Gethsemane. And if you look in Mark chapter 14, verse 34, as he's having that agony of, the, of headed towards the cross, as his world is coming apart, he says, verse, uh, chapter 14, 34, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. That's that same word, to the point of death. Are you getting it? Material stuff for the rich young ruler played the same role as intimacy with the Father did for Jesus. Both the rich young ruler and Jesus, both of their lives were coming apart and unraveling, but for entirely different reasons. One, because the only thing he couldn't live without, his stuff, he just can't live without it. Another one's world is coming apart because the only thing he can't live without is the Father. And the text says, I love how it says that Jesus looked at this young man and he did what? He loved him. I like to think he loved him because he knew that his story and the story of the rich young ruler overlap. Because there is a second rich young ruler in this story. There is a true, a real rich young ruler. And this person is rich. In fact, he created you. He owns all the resources of heaven. And yet he laid it alone to come here, live in voluntary poverty, be born to an unwed teenage mother in a backwoods part of the empire to die penniless on a cross. Jesus is rich. Jesus is also young in this story, in his early 30s, probably not unlike this ruler. He's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. He has a kingdom, and it's a really big deal. Amen? Jesus is the true rich young ruler in this story. And he's asking you, don't think this doesn't apply to you because you don't have any money. Don't think it doesn't apply because your student debts are bigger than your, your banking account. He asks you and me the question, will you let me be the better God? Will you have a real heaven and a real hell to avoid and a real savior? Because guys, all the other gods with lowercase will never die for you. Your job, as good as it may be, will never die for you. Your academic, um, academic achievement, you might almost die trying to get it, but it will never die for you. Your health, your children, your parents, your hobbies, your recreation, your learning, your knowledge, none of those things will die for you. There's only one who left his place to come here and give his life, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the better God that we need to have what it takes. You don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes. I don't need an extra book or an extra supplement to my program. What I really need, what you need, is to have a true rich young ruler come along smash my assumptions about what Christianity, what faith is, and lead us to a place where we will experience a better God. Because that God came, and that picture you see in front of you right there, when he came to the last moments of his life, and he hung on the cross, he did not say, my God, my God, why am I losing my investments? Why am I losing my 401k? Why am I losing my reputation? 
Why am I losing my influence? The one thing he couldn't live without was the father. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. That's what I need. That's what you and I need is to hear Jesus speaking directly to the issue beneath the issue and saying, will you lay it aside? You think, it'll be, you think it will bring joy and power and happiness. It's going to fade. There's only one God who can bring that. And so today, we don't have a connect card. We don't have any specific action steps, but I want to ask you a question as we close. And that question is, is Jesus the better God in your life? Is he really the better God? You say, I don't know. I think he is. But sometimes we don't know what our idols are until they're taken away. And if Jesus is leading you into a place in your life of darkness and challenge, embrace it as difficult as it is as an act of grace to reveal what that one thing is and to be able to respond to receive a better God. Is he the better God in your life? Is he the only thing that you can't live without? Because what we need is not more power or more supplements or an extra file. What we really need is a better God. The true rich young ruler demands more than you thought, but he promises far more than you could ever imagine. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, may we walk out of this place today as we click off the internet or the radio, wherever we are, may we go through the rest of our day knowing that following you is not addition. It's not a supplement to the good things already in our life. It's a radical reorientation, Lord. And I just pray whatever that one thing is, that you would reveal it. You would clarify it. And like the skilled surgeon you are, you would identify it, extract it, and destroy it so that we can live with a better God. Because you not only demand more than we thought, but you offer far more than we could ever, ever imagine. And so as we go into the rest of this day, as we're sitting around the lunch table, as we're mixing with friends and going through our weekend, may we, through the Spirit, ask ourselves that question, are you the better God in our life? Because when that takes place, Lord, we won't have what it takes but you do, and that's when we will live in step with your spirit. So we thank you, and we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.